This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he's a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. This episode of Under the Yellow Tape is brought to you by Sheepdog Java Coffee Company. The Sheepdog, the Sentinel, protecting the flock while it sleeps, keeping the wolves at bay. The Sheepdog never questions why, it simply does its job with honor and vigilance. The Sheepdogs in everyday life are your first responders. On the job 24-7, keeping watch while your family lives the American dream. The men and women of our armed forces, our nurses and firefighters, our paramedics, laboratory scientists, and of course, our police officers. These professionals work tirelessly day in and day out to keep your world safe, healthy, and whole. It's really not a job, it's a calling. Now we are honored to serve them. Introducing Sheepdog Java. We're more than just a coffee company. Sure, our specialty blends will help folks like you create the finest cup of coffee you've tasted. But what's even more special is that we're partnering with American Valor Foundation through the Chris Kyle Memorial Benefit to help fund training and professional development for first responders nationwide. We know training budgets are tight. Sheepdog Java will reinvest in your first responders, helping fund and create training courses so they can operate at the highest level in order to keep you, your family, and your community safe. So join the pack. Try Sheepdog Java today in support of your first responders and enjoy each cup with peace of mind. For more information, check us out at sheepdogjava.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. <clears throat> we're switching things up a little bit. We're going to go to a video format as well. And we're going to do some episodes coming up here with some video and audio content. We'll see how you like it. And see what you uh, think of both the content and the new video aspect. Today, what I want to do is I want to talk about uh, an incident that happened in Minneapolis, Minnesota, back on February 22nd of 22, earlier this year. And it was a young man by the name of Amir Locke. And uh, he is a young 22-year-old man, African-American, black, black man, who was fatally shot by police SWAT team on during the execution of a search warrant. And the search warrant was <clears throat> for homicide. Now, first things first, Amir Locke was not a suspect in the homicide. He just happened to be at his cousin's house, who was 
wanted for the murder um, and subsequently has been arrested and charged with two counts of second degree murder. His name is Mecky Speed. He was a youngster. He was 17. He's out 17 years old. He's out killing people. So, but Amir was over at his house. You know, um, we're going to get to his the comments by his family and we're going to just talk a little bit about it. The real reason I want to talk about this though is not the actual shooting. It's the aftermath of the shooting and the public outcry that came as a result of this shooting and why, why, it, I, th why I think it's an issue. The case has been reviewed and there has been a decision made by both the county attorney of Hennepin County and the, whose name is Michael Freeman, and the attorney general of the state, Keith Ellison, who we have spoken about, um, we've commented on him in previous episodes, and we'll get into him again a little bit here. They made the decision and they made the public statement that there will be no charges filed against a police officer. So now we want, we want to really look at is why. And, and the significance and the impact of them giving that statement as to why that was important. So Minneapolis police SWAT team execute what's called a no-knock warrant. This has become the outcry, the no-knock warrant. Many, many people in these inner city communities, they're of the opinion, hey, we got to get rid of these. They got to get rid of them. I want to talk about that as well. There's a video and the video shows that uh, the police get a key, probably from the super building superintendent. This is some, some kind of housing project. Um, and they go in. They turn the key, they unlock the door, and they make their way in. And they're in a semi-stack formation as they they go in. They're, or they're wearing body armor. They're wearing a raid vests that clearly say police on it. And one of the things that you see very, very clearly as you look at this video is that as they enter the door, they immediately start screaming police search warrant police. I don't want to say maybe six or seven times you hear it pretty loudly. Multiple people are saying it and it's, it's, it's not a secret that they're the police. They go in and, and they, um, they make their presence known directly in front of them. As they walk through the door, there is a sofa, a couch within 10 seconds of the of the of the entry this all unfolds they make their way towards the couch they see somebody on the couch or something under the couch under a blanket one of the officers kicks the couch to stir whoever it is and they're screaming commands show us your hands show us your hands with that you see the blanket kind of come off a hand come out holding a pistol with the head of the individual and he's clearly holding the pistol right in his hand. And it is, the pistol comes pointing out, never comes up up towards not necessarily at them, but he comes out from under that blanket with a pistol in hand. Which point? The police fire. One of the police officers fires and kills him. That is a mere lock. Now, there's been a lot of comments by a lot of critics um, and whatnot. And they... Uh, they say basically that the police officer should be charged with murder. They want a murder charge against this police officer, which, you know, I mean, <clears throat> you're executing a search warrant and a kid comes out from under the covers with a gun in his hand after, after the screaming of the word police, police search warrant, show us your hands. The attorney general decides we can't press charges. Now I want to talk about that. 
That's the part that I have a, that, that I think I find very interesting about this case. So we'll go through a little bit of some of the things that were said and some of the things that were done. There was a lot of comments from a number of different people in this in this particular case, and you find um, well, it's just it's just it's unfortunate because the kid Amir Locke, uh, he he was not the subject of this homicide investigation. He's just hanging out with his cousin now. Reasonable, logical people in the aftermath of this, and certainly the investigators during the investigation of this, are going to have a question. Why are you at your cousin's house who's wanted for murder in the first place? Why did he have a gun? Now, his family says the gun is legally owned, legally purchased, and he has a concealed carry permit. I have not, I've looked a lot of this stuff up without, you know, obviously reaching out to the Hennepin County Attorney, District Attorney, who's not going to answer any of our questions because I lit him up a few times. I, I have a question. Where is the permit? Because in all of the articles and all of the research that I've done looking at this, the only people saying that he has a lawful permit to purchase or a, a, a permit to carry is his family. I have not seen the family. I mean, I have not seen any of the officials give that comment or that statement. None of them have come out and said, hey, you know, yeah, we, he did have a permit to purchase. Now, there's one article that talks about, uh, well, first of all, you, you have, the, you have the, the parasites show up, the Benjamin Crumps, the Al Sharptons, and that whole crew that runs around the country like ambulance chasers. And latches onto the family of anybody who is a minority that may or may not have been injured or killed by the police because they sue. They're bottom feeders. And they have nothing to do with the investigation. They have everything to do with trying to milk the money out of the city, which they're going to do. They do it all the time. So yeah, we can make fun of them, but they, listen, they, they're, all, they're all getting rich. Al Sharpton flies around on private jets and has limos and $3,000 silk suits for a reason because he gets a cut of whatever they get. But he sticks his face on the camera and, you know, next thing you know, uh, people are, are going to want to listen to him. So in, in some of the um, articles and some of it here, we have, uh, they say that, that uh, Amir left with his mother in 2019 and moved down to Texas near Dallas. Other statements were saying that he had the intention uh, of soon of moving to Dallas. The reason that's important is because we don't know really which one. I don't know which one is true. He's either already in Dallas and he's going back and forth to Minneapolis. But you're in Minneapolis in February. Arguably, that's not the time of year you want to be in Minnesota, unless you're a penguin and you like freezing cold weather. I don't know. But you're down in Dallas in February. I'd stay there. So he's back and forth maybe. Maybe he already moved. Maybe he didn't move yet. He's another one of these kids who is an aspiring rapper. I don't know why. But every one of these things we can't we come across, a family says, you know, they were an aspiring rapper. It has no significance whatsoever, but it's just ironic that they all are aspiring rappers. So he may or may not have been down already in 2019 with his mom in uh, in Texas, but he's back here for whatever reason. And my my reason for bringing that up is simple. I don't know where he got the gun. He may have gotten the gun in. Uh, Texas. And if that's the case, that's fine. Uh, he may have le legally purchased a gun in Texas. 
he may have a carry permit in Texas. Now, if that's the case, and he purchased the gun in Texas and he has a carry permit in Texas, he is not permitted to bring the gun to Minnesota. Minnesota does not have reciprocity, especially on a carry permit. So if the if this is a big if, if the if he bought the gun in Texas and the family saying it's a legally purchased firearm, they're not lying. It's legally purchased in Texas. If he bought it in Minnesota, that's fine. It might be legally owned. As far as whether or not he has a carry permit in Minnesota, I don't know that because there's no there's no uh, investigating authority that has come out and said anything about him having a carry permit. And I have a feeling if if they did, if he did, they would have made an issue of that. But they didn't seem to make an issue of that at all. So um, uh, the one unknown we have here and a question that I would have as an investigator is, okay, where was the gun purchased? Now, I guarantee they ran an ATF trace on it, which is alcohol, alcohol tobacco, and firearms, federal agency. They'll, they'll, they'll trace where that gun was purchased. Interesting thing. It was an FN 5.7 pistol. Not one you see uh, on the streets very often. Um, this is a very high speed, uh, very high quality pistol, which we're going to talk about a little bit uh, towards the end here. But I'm not saying he didn't buy it legally. I'm just, my curiosity as an investigator would be, where did you buy it? Because if you bought it in Texas, I don't want to hear about legal legal anything in Minnesota because it's not legal. So if that if that weapon was purchased legally wherever... Uh, the family may not be may not be saying something that's untrue. It's just a matter of the question is why? Why does he have it there? Now, here's the other thing: illegally or not, what are you doing hanging out with Mackie Speed, your 17 year old cousin who's wanted for murder? If he's wanted for murder and he's been indicted for murder, there's a chance he's a scumbag. And you decide, you know what? I'm going to hang with him. Now, his mom. This is this is one of those brilliant moments. Who's I don't know if she was coached on this by Mr. Crump. She says, the boys were just having a sleepover. Oh, yeah. We're just having a sleepover. While I'm on the lam for murder, and my cousin's going to come over and bring his pistol, and we're going to have a sleepover. She kind of said it like, like they were having popcorn and watching Frozen or something. Hey, man, we're just going to hear and watch, you know, we're going to sing Let It Go together. Um, no, it's not a sleepover, ma'am. At that age, they don't have sleepovers. They're hanging out, whatever. I'm not saying your kid was doing anything wrong prior to this, but he's. it comes back to that old saying or a couple old sayings. One, you, you got to surround yourself with the right people. You got to make good decisions in your life. I mean, you really do. And the other thing is, if you play stupid games, you're going to win stupid prizes. And Amir might not have made the best decisions that particular day. And me, I know a lot of you are out there going to say, hey, man, he can hang out with whoever he wants. Actually, no, you can't really. Because he's dead. Because he was hanging around with the wrong guy who brought the popo to the door. Okay? Mekki's out shooting people. He, he shot a 38-year-old man. Um, and uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Doesn't really matter. But anyways, he, he went out and he shot a guy and, uh, you know, they're coming for you. It's going to happen sooner or later. The, the, the boogeyman's going to come to the door. And they did here. And you happen to be having a nap on the couch with your gun. That's not illegal. But if you're out of state with an illegal gun, then it is illegal. And the thing I want you to keep going back to in your head is, 
Why did this county attorney and the attorney general say we can't charge him? And I want to get into how that came about. So one of the big things is the no-knock warrants up there, and they're flipping out about these no-knock warrants, saying you can't have these. These are not. These are not correct. These are dangerous, and blah 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 blah. And um, you know, <laughs> no-knock warrants are, are they exist for a reason. A no-knock warrant exists to give the legal authorities who have, by the way, applied for the search warrant, have created an affidavit applying for the search warrant. It's been reviewed by a DA, and it's been signed off on by a judge. So this isn't like they just you know, busted out a 64-pack of Crayola crayons, whipped the shit out on a piece of construction paper, and you know, beat your door down. It doesn't really work that way. There's a lot of people involved. There's steps that go that are involved. They have to present a reason why they're going to do this. So they did, and they got it. They got two warrants. They got an option of a knock and no knock. Everybody says that's why we have to do it. Now, Benjamin Crump comes out and says, quote, warrants create chaotic, confusing circumstances that put everyone present at risk. That's true. But he goes on to say, and those people are disproportionately marginalized people of color. He might be right. Why? I don't know. Why? Why do you think that is? You answer it. You, 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 everybody out there that might be listening to this, come up with a reason why. I, you know, there's a lot of crime in these black neighborhoods, folks. We've, we've gone through statistics before. The 16 census. 13.1% of the population, African-American. It's down now to 12.4. But you know what? Their numbers on killing are the same. And it's it's an issue. So when 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 Benjamin Crumb says, warrants create chaotic, confusing circumstances that puts everyone in danger, you're damn right they do. I'll tell you who else they put in danger. The police. Because you're going through the door. What's on the other side? I don't know. See, here's the deal. You got to remember too. On one side of that door before the warrant's executed, is the law. On the other side is the guy the law is searching for, potentially, and anybody else that's with them. The law is there for a reason. And the bad guy on the other side is there for a reason. The bad guy did something and they found you. So as they come through, yes, it's exactly what he said. It's a chaotic, confusing circumstance and it puts everyone at risk. Everyone present is at risk. Yep. I agree with that 100%. That is not a false statement. And the fact that they're disproportionately marginalized people of color, that may be true too, but that's not the police's fault. That's not anybody's fault, but the person inside that's being pursued. That is decisions they made somewhere else. They love to go back to, to Breonna Taylor in Louisville and say, see, it happened there on a noon all corner too. We did an episode on that. Remember, the police took gunfire first from Brianna's scumbag boyfriend who decided to start lighting people up at the front door. And she actually accidentally got hit. You want to talk about that? Go back and listen to that episode because we go into that in detail. It's not the same as this. It's similar, but not the same. But the, but I love how they go, you know, it's, it's these no-knock warrants. Man, we got, we got to get rid of them. Yeah, that's right. Let's get rid of the element surprise of surprise for the good guys. So the bad guys have a better opportunity at an even gunfight. Is that what you're looking to do? Because that's really what's going to happen. And when you say, yeah, but that we're not really, we don't really like what's going on. I, I, I understand, you know, like what's going on. You know, the bad guys are getting shot up. And the people around the bad guys might be getting shot up. Here's a, here's a, 
Here's a pro tip. Don't hang out with people who commit murder. And you're probably not going to get your ass smoke checked by the police when they show up to get the murderer. Just something to think about. Now, as uh, being objective and investigating this, you, you want to know everything about this kid. What is he? Does he have a criminal history? Apparently not. So there is a tragedy here. But again, you put yourself in a position, you're hanging around the wrong people. Um, Amelia Huffman is the interim police chief at the time. Maybe she still is in Minneapolis. She said knock and no knock warrants were obtained as part of the St. Paul Police Department homicide investigation to the SWAT team could make its best assessment. That's what they do. And that it was unclear if Locke was connected to the St. Paul investigation. At the time, they didn't know, right? Okay. So, interesting, because all the little footage, you know, uh, people that are up in that Minnesota area causing half the problems always seem to surface. Body camera footage was released to the public, but only after Representative Elon Omar. She's a stand-up member of society. And members of the Minnesota House of Representatives calls for the footage. I think they would have done it anyways. I would. You got to keep popping out with a pistol and saying, I got nothing to hide. Now, Huffman, the interim chief, she says, based on a still shot from the body cam footage, that's the moment when the officer had to make a split second decision to assess an articulable threat. That the threat was of imminent harm, great bodily harm or death, and that he needed to take action to protect himself and other officers. And ultimately, she stated, ultimately, that decision of whether that threshold was met will be examined by the county attorney's office that reviews the case. Well, she's right about that, ultimately. But first, it's going to be, inve- it's going to be vetted by the investigators. They're going, to, they're going to figure this out. They're going to do some interviews and this and that. Now, when an officer is involved in a shooting, it's important to remember that in viewing the shooting and the circumstances surrounding the shooting, it has to be done from the viewpoint of the officer involved. In other words, you can't just play Monday morning quarterback and say, man, coulda, woulda, shoulda. In fairness, it has to be done from the position of the person that made the decision. Did they make uh, a decision that was 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 reasonable? And um, that's one of the things that they have to consider when they decide whether or not they're going to move forward with grand juries or charging anybody. Um. Esther, I don't know how the hell you pronounce her last name, Agbaji. She's a Minnesota representative. She resides in the building where Locke was shot in this housing project. She said, we need to continue to have a serious conversation about what does policing look like in this city so it's safe, not only for the police officers, but also for the people who live here. Minnesotans deserve a thorough and impartial investigation. That's all true. The part that, the underlying theme here is they keep going back to the police, the police, the police, the police, the police. What does it look like, the policing? I don't know. What does people, what does is, what is civilianing look like in, in Minneapolis and St. Paul? Are any of you behaving? Maybe maybe there's, there's incidents with the police because a lot of you aren't really behaving. What I did find very interesting, according to Rob Doerr, Senior Vice President of Governmental Affairs, the Minnesota Gun Owners Caucus, He said, Mr. Locke did what many of us might do in the same confusing circumstances. He reached for a legal means of self-defense. Again, this is not an authority. He's assuming it's legal too. It may be. It may not be. But what's his underlying uh, game here? He's got a dog in this fight. 
He's on the Minnesota Gun Caucus Owners Caucus. He wants to protect the Second Amendment, and I completely understand that. I would expect anybody from one of these gun caucuses or uh, uh, gun organizations to try to, you know, they got to walk a line. They got to walk a, they got to walk a careful line here because they're protecting the Second Amendment thing, and that's what that's their whole purpose. So I understand why they would say that. Um. Jerome Treadwell, an executive uh, director of Minnesota Teen Activist, stated our message today is that we need to protect young black lives. Yeah, you do. Um, but, but you know, you got to make people in general, white, black, or it doesn't matter what, they have to make good decisions. You can't constantly put yourselves in these bad positions, ultimately get caught up in something, and then blame everybody else. Blame a no-knock warrant. Blame a gun. Blame this. It's the kind of uh, thing that's getting old and people don't want to hear it anymore. It's just, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. At a news conference uh, in New York, Karen Wells, who is uh, Amir Locke's mother, she stood next to Benjamin Crump and Reverend Al Sharpton, and she addressed the officer who killed her son. He says, the spirit of my baby is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. She's, this guy that's that's uh, a SWAT team member who's not part of the, you know, necessarily the criminal investigation into her kid. He's just executing the search warrant that's been given to him. He goes through the door. The kid pops out with a gun, and he has to make a life uh, split decision, split second decision. And and you're you're saying things like that. You're, you're going to be haunted for the rest of your life. You know the crazy thing is, you want him to be haunted for the rest of your life, for the rest of his life. The truth is, he probably will be. For this, this is not something he wanted to do, I'm sure. And, um, you know, it, it will be not for the reasons you want it to be, but he probably will have some, some feeling of being haunted by this. Um, uh, it's kind of just, I don't know, it's kind of interesting that she would say that. And there is some truth to what she's saying, but not for the reasons that she is saying. Now, why? Why did they? Did they ref did they not pursue any charges against the officer? Well, they reviewed it, right? And they're looking at the law. Now, I think one of the things that really struck me about this uh, from from the from the get-go is what they said. And Keith Ellison, the attorney general for the state of Minnesota, came out and he said, they're not pursuing charges because we couldn't, we didn't feel there was enough evidence to get a conviction. And that's the statement I have a problem with. We didn't feel there was enough evidence to get a conviction. It's like your way of saying, I don't think they acted properly, but I can't shove it up their ass. You, you execute a no-knock warrant on a murder suspect. You come through the door and 10 seconds in, a kid pops out from under a blanket with a pistol in his hand. And you're saying, well, you know, I don't think we could have, I don't think we really could have prosecuted him the way, it kind of makes it sound like the way we wanted to. Which makes you think about Keith Ellison and who he is and what, what his take is and what his, his mindset is on this. Um, and, and that's, that's a problem. You're the attorney general of a state. 
you're making a statement like that, basically saying, you know, we couldn't get, um, we couldn't charge them the way that we want. We wouldn't be able to successfully prosecute him. How about saying something like this? The execution of a no-knock warrant or a knock warrant or breaching of a doorway in a tactical situation is a very dynamic and difficult event. The actions of Mr. Locke were a contributing factor in him being shot by the team executing the search warrant. The fact that in the face of them yelling, police, 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 search warrant, he still had a pistol in his hand and came out from under the covers can be seen nothing less than um, an aggressive, possibly an aggressive move with an armed individual. Let's face it. Amir Locke is an armed individual in a very dangerous situation. This is a tactical entry, a dynamic entry, an entry carried out by a SWAT team because they know it's a dangerous situation. So they bring in the teams that are more equipped, better trained, and they execute these things, these types of operations. And they're looking for uh, an individual, uh, Mackie Speed, his, his cousin, who on January 10th, by the way, shot and killed. The gen gentleman's name was Otis Elder, a 38-year-old man was gunned down. They, they have probable cause to get here. Uh, a prosecuting attorney okayed it, somebody in the DA's office, and a judge signed it. They tracked here, it says right here, it tracked a Mercedes-Benz prosecutor say from the scene of that crime in Bolero to the Bolero Flats apartment complex in Minneapolis. According to the petition file, both St. Paul and Minnesota's police, Minneapolis police, obtained search warrants for apartments 701, 1402, and 1403. They had probable cause pickup and holds for Mechie Speed and two other associates. And again, this is for murder. This isn't where, hey, we're knocking on the door to say, hey, is so-and-so home? He's got, a, he's got a traffic warrant. These are murder warrants. So as they do this, they go through and he pops out with a gun. This is what's going to happen. You're going to get dealt with one way or another. And had he dropped the gun, maybe he wouldn't have been shot. Had he never come out from under the covers with the gun, maybe he never would have been shot. And a lot of people are saying, yeah, but you know, he was asleep and he wasn't really thinking clearly. Well, that may be true, but you still put yourself in the apartment of a murderer and armed yourself. And whether you like it or not, that's one of the reasons you got shot. Before I get into Keith Ellison anymore, let's talk about the gun. This is an FN 5.7 pistol. Interesting gun. Expensive gun. Very high speed. This gun is not your average everyday pistol. This is a very, it shoots a very special round. It's a 5.7 by 28 millimeter cartridge. I'm going to tell you this, not that the police said, well, we shot him because he had a 5.7 FN because they didn't have time to make that decision. But I want you to just kind of get an idea of what's on the street and what the police have to deal with sometimes. So one of the design intents for the uh, standard 5.7 by 28 um, was that it would have the ability to penetrate Kevlar protective vests, okay, such as the NATO vest. It will most those vests will stop conventional pistol bullets. Um, a bullet, a 5.7 by 28 millimeter round in the SS 190, has a muzzle velocity of roughly 
2,130 feet per second. Now, that probably doesn't mean anything to folks. But what I'm, what I'm trying to explain and by giving you that information is this, is this is traveling at the velocity of a rifle round. This is, this is a very high speed, small caliber projectile and is capable of penetrating a vest at a range of 110 yards or 48 layers of Kevlar material equivalent to two stacked level two Kevlar vest panels at a range of 55 yards. Think about that. This thing goes through body armor. It's also capable of penetrating a vest at a range of 330 yards or a helmet at a range of 260 yards. FN states that the effective range of 50 meters and a maximum range of 1,650 yards. Maybe some of you are into guns and you understand what I'm saying here. This is a pistol. This is a pistol, effective range at 1,650 yards. It shows you the velocity and the range of this. This is not your standard everyday pistol that you see on the street. In testing conducted by the Passaic County, New Jersey Sheriff's Department, the 5 cent, the 57 by 28 penetrated a depth of 11 inches in bare ballistic gelatin and a depth of 9 inches, listen to this, in gelatin protected with a Kevlar vest, meaning it went through the Kevlar vest and continued through the gelatin nine more inches. This is a gun that if had been fired at those police officers, would have gone through their body armor potentially, had it not hit a shock plate or anything first. This is what they're dealing with on the street. So when you think that they're going through a door and everything is going to go according to plan, understand that it normally doesn't do that. They were not expecting a mere lock to pop out from under a set of blankets with a pistol in his hand. And when he did, they had no choice but to deal with him. Um, it seems like the prosecuting attorneys were upset that they had to tell the public that, hey, listen, man, we can't, we can't charge the police officer. Maybe it's because the police officer acted within the, within the scope of the law. And he did. It was a legal warrant authorized by a court he entered the premises and were confronted by a young man with a pistol. You have to expect in those circumstances that the police officers are going to react. And people said, because one of the ACLU lawyers came out and says, well, they didn't give him any other verbal commands to, to drop the weapon. You're right. They didn't. It wasn't like he had it in his waistband. He came out with it in his hand. If you watch the video again, he comes out and that gun in his hand ready to go. Well, you can't wait, folks. You don't know what's going to happen. Is he going to drop the gun? Are you in a position to give him that time in a no-knock warrant or any warrant? You're confronted in that kind of quick situation. And they say, well, the answer is ban no-knock warrants. Well, now you're taking a tool away from law enforcement. You're given the potential, not that Amir Locke was a bad guy, but you're going to give the potential bad guy time. And you're going to remove the element of surprise from the good guys. Remember, the good guys that we, the general public, law-abiding citizens, ask to go out and do this job. Why would I take the tools away from him? Because Amir Locke got shot? Maybe Amir Locke shouldn't have brought the pistol out at his murderer cousin's house. It's unfortunate. And it is a tragedy because he doesn't seem like he was the, all that bad of a kid. I mean, he was, you know, they say aspiring rapper. I, I kind of chuckle when I hear that, but everybody wants to be a rapper. Now, 
the man given the statement, um, what's his name? Freeman is the attorney, the, the district attorney. He's retiring at the end of his term, so they say. But Keith Ellison, okay, Keith Ellison is the elected dis, uh, attorney general for the state of Minnesota. He has popped off in everything, every single case up there. He wants to take over and take charge. Now, when you have Elon, uh, what's her name? Uh, Omar. And all the other people up from the the Somali neighborhood in in Minneapolis, which has has been kind of a hotbed of problems. He is a practicing Muslim. Not that it should matter, but he is. But what does matter is he has been accused in the past and documented in media reports as being an outspoken, I don't want to say outright supporter, but somewhat supportive of certain people that have been incarcerated. He has been somewhat supportive of people who have murdered police officers in the past. This is your attorney general, Minnesota. Okay. He has spoken on behalf of Sarah Jane Olson, who was a member of the SLA, the Symbionese Liberation Army, who was uh, responsible for being involved in um, the potential bombing of an LAPD vehicle, bank robberies, the abduction of pa uh, Patricia Hurst, Okay, going back in that in that day, she's out now. She did some time in jail, and now she's out. You now she's gonna be a better person. Mamia Abu Jamal, who is incarcerated for the murder of two Philadelphia police officers, I believe it's two, at least one. Sharif Willis, one of Minnesota's own, who is uh, who killed Jeffrey Hoff, police officer, Minneapolis police. Hatched a plan in his house, and with uh, him and another. Um, um, individual went out and um, I think his name was Ellison. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure his last name, but he, they, they, they killed Jer Jerry Hoff and have been incarcerated. And um, he's been present at demonstrations against Minneapolis police. My point is this. Keith Ellison is viewed as many people as an out an out racist. He has been, when the Democratic Party was going to put him up higher on the pedestal on a national level, several women have come out and talked about how he has mistreated them verbally and physically abused them. They were allegations that were made against him. Uh, when you speak out against police officers and support in any way some of, the, some of these uh, convicted cop killers, I have an issue. Are you really, do you really have the interest of the law at heart or, or is it more of a political and emotional passion for you that you support these people? Are you that anti-establishment? And he may be. He also spoke out on behalf of Joanne Chesimard, who like many have gone to jail and changed their names to a, uh, you know, adopted the Muslim faith and changed their name. She is now Asada Shakur, who is responsible for the murder of Warner Forrester, a New Jersey state trooper in the 1970s. She escaped from a jail and has been living since in Cuba. He spoke on behalf of her. So when I hear Keith Ellison come out and say, you know, we couldn't really, we can't move for, forward with any charges because we feel that we wouldn't be able to adequately get the conviction. Yeah. That's like saying they actually didn't do anything wrong, folks. 
it's a tragedy, but the tragedy has circumstances. And even Keith Ellison looked at this. The guy who would love, probably, to prosecute a police officer. It's been his lifelong endeavor with some of these groups. Um, he had to even admit that we can't do it. So the lessons learned from this case from Amir Locke, one, even if it's a legally p- uh, purchased firearm, you, you can't, you just can't do certain things. Surround yourself with better people. Cousin or not, friend or not, he's, he's wanted for murder. You might want to look at him and say, hey, dude, I can't be around you right now. You know, the man's going to come looking for you, and I don't want to be there when he does. And if I am going to hang out with you, I sure as shit I'm not going to carry a gun with me. Because when they come, they're coming for real. When the police show up at your door with a search warrant on a murder investigation and a warrant for your arrest for murder, they're not going to play games. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a game. It's a life or death situation, as they just found out. It's a shame that he died. It's a shame that he had that gun. It's a shame that he popped out under the covers. They did. And it's a shame that the police officer had to shoot him. But he felt that he needed to. And when you look at it from the viewpoint and the, and the, the point of view of the police officer, what alternative did he have? And, and what authorities did they have under the letter of the law? You can't just say, well, we're going to change the law because we didn't like it. It's for the greater good of everybody. People have to start behaving better, folks. It's just the way it is. Um, nothing as good is happening up in... I just I literally was on the phone with somebody from Minneapolis before I, I did this recording. And um, I asked him, you know, hey, what's going on up there? He said, even the Minnesota State Patrol, who has a classes of like 80 and 90 when they do one, is down to like 12 in a class. People are leaving the Minneapolis Police Department in droves. And there are people that are applauding that going, yeah, that's great, man. Yeah, that's great. Because we got to really reinvent it. We got to redo this. One of the problems is the people that are redoing it are not cops and really have no um, experience. Let's put it that way. They're, they're, they're and this is the difference between a practitioner and an academic. The academics love to tell you, uh, this is how it should be. I'm an academic. I look at all the degrees I have hanging on my wall that says, you know, I sat in a classroom, listened to somebody else for four or five years, seven, eight years, whatever it may be. I know everything. Just listen to me. They love to say that. So the no-knock warrant thing up in Minneapolis is going to be reviewed. And multiple reviews of the no-knock warrant policy are pending, including by the Minneapolis City Council Policy and Government Oversight Committee. I don't know who's on that that has any clue as to what to do on a tactical breach. And the Minneapolis Office of Police Conduct Review, I'm not sure who in there has any experience either. They sound like great names and they sound like, you know, at face value, look, all right, yeah, they might, they might have something to say here. But here we go. As well as racial justice activists. What the fuck are we putting racial activists on these boards for? D. Ray McKesson. D-Ray, how many doors have you breached? Hmm? How many flashbangs have you thrown? Maybe you have, I don't know, but I don't think you have. And professor of police studies, Peter Kraska of Eastern Kentucky University. Okay. I didn't see one person on there that had a name or a, or a background that they're showing in that article that shows that they have 
any business making decisions on a tactical. How about the head of NTOA, National Tactical Officers Association? How about somebody from the military? How about somebody from a SWAT team? How about a varying degree of people that actually do this shit for a living? Maybe we could ask them what they think and how that should go. What do you guys think? I don't know. I don't want to beat this thing up anymore. It, it's a tragedy that this young kid got killed, um, but this is not new. Better decisions. I'm not going to say better parenting because I heard her speak and she seemed like a very squared away lady, the mother at one point, except for the sleepover thing. Um, I feel bad for her. This is her child, no matter what. And, um, you know, he was, he was killed. He was, in a, he was in a wrong place at the wrong time and the wrong thing in his hand. And it's, it is a tragedy. As far as the people that want to beat up the police officer that did this, put yourself in his shoes. You're doing your job. You walk through the door. Kid pops out with a gun. What are you going to do? So as always on under the yellow tape, what we say is, look, we're going to give you this information. You make your own decisions here. Uh, this is not an easy thing to, to kind of go through and, uh, and look at objectively. One of the biggest pushes in criminal investigation work these days is objectivity. We're trying to just push that objectivity thing here. And, you know, it's hard. You'll hear even in my voice, sometimes I'll say things like, well, what did you expect? What did you expect? A lot of that comes from years of experience of doing this. And um, you still have to be objective and you have to look at the law and you have to take the actions of each person involved in these events and measure it against the rule of law. And um, I'm not, I, I, it's <laughs> far be it for me to give Keith Ellison a lot of credit, but I have to give him some here. Legally, he made the right choice. I don't think he liked it, but he did. And he may have a pressure from other people to say, hey, man, we can't do it. Whatever. I'll give him the credit. He made the right choice here. Going after a no-knock warrant may not be the thing to do. Maybe what we need to do is have a massive message to the, these violent inner city areas and say, when they're coming through the door, you better do as you're told. Because if you don't, you might end up like this poor young man right here. And in a, in a in a time where our violence on the streets is hitting record numbers, we have to understand that something has to be done. And we're not going to back down. The general public, white, black, Asian, it doesn't matter. We're not going to back down. We are a nation of law and order. And we as a people, not the police, we as a people are going to demand it. You're going to see this pendulum start to swing back now. It's pegged at ludicrous speed in the wrong direction. So I urge you to go online, look it up, A-M-I-R, Amir Locke, L-O-C-K-E. Read some of it for yourself. Make your own decisions. As I always say, don't count on the U.S. media to guide you in a, in a, in a, in a way that's going to enable you to make good decisions. They have, a, they, have a, they have a mission. They're selling things. And they're doing it for a reason. So you leave it upon yourself. You're, you're grownups and uh, you're smart enough to look at it yourself, but you have to look at it objectively and you have to look at everything before you can make a decision and start to criticize one way or the other. So that'll do it for this one on Amir Locke. Um, like I said, we're not here to change your mind. We're just here to open your mind, look at it objectively and make your own decisions. All right. And uh, thanks for listening under the yellow tape. And um, I want to say a special thank you out there to the American Valor Foundation. 
for everything they're doing for our first responders and our military veterans. They are, um, they're working every day to try to make things better for these folks and doing, doing some great, uh, great things. And there's some great events. If you want to check them out, it's the American Valor Foundation. I urge you to give them a look. All right. Everybody take care and we'll talk soon.